Hey Rob, it's the exciting intro to the intro, the bit where we talk about what happened in the episode uh, that we've already recorded, but it's at the start of the podcast. I think I'm with you. Yes, it's episode 18, our second episode in partnership with Disruption Magazine. You can find out more information on disruptionhub.com. Thanks to the guys there, and we'll have a new column in the next edition of their magazine soon. The current edition is about purpose and whether purpose and profit go together, which is pretty relevant for today's episode. Yeah, absolutely. Today's episode is all about big tech and kind of beyond that, the role it plays in our lives and perhaps some of the problems with it. Definitely. And we've got a great interview coming up with Mr. Rod Banner. Why don't you tell us a little bit about his illustrious career? Sure. Rod is an entrepreneur. He builds brands, architects business propositions and sharpens messaging. I'm reading his bio, obviously. Rod is a fantastic guy. He's had an illustrious career, broadly in the advertising and marketing industry, sold his first business to WPP, who many will know, uh, one of the largest groups in that sector. He's also been listed in the Tech City Insider 100, the Fresh Business Thinking Power 100, the Maserati 100, lots of hundreds, Jim, the Smith & Williamson Power 100, and G Hughes list of the 100 most connected men in Britain. Wow. At Rod Banner on Twitter. If it's got 100 in it, Rod's the man man. for that list. He's your man. Very much looking forward to welcoming him to the studio later on to talk all about what's wrong with big tech and uh, his thoughts on the topic of joy. Do you know what, Rob? He's sitting opposite while you're saying this. (laughs) He is, which makes it even more entertaining. This is Alexa Stop. Alexa Stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Well, howdy doody, Rob. How the devil are you? Bit jet lagged, Jim. Bit jet lagged. Why are you jet lagged? Uh, I'm just back from America. And what, did you have a good time? I did. And uh, did you go skiing? I got one day of skiing in, but it was terrible. That wasn't why I was there. Well, talking of America, Google, who are from America, have an announcement. They have indeed made an announcement. This episode is going to be all about big tech and Google, a participant of the big tech world have just announced a game streaming service they have but before we talk about that i of course have to do the jingle for this part of the show which is it's the news it's the news oh yes it is the news we're starting with a big tech breaking news announcement i feel like we need an extra jingle for breaking news it's breaking news <laughs> it's breaking news slightly less breaking by the time you listen to this i'd imagine but yeah google today have announced a new streaming service which brings them alongside the likes of microsoft with the xbox x cloud service announced about a week ago and sony's service which i can't remember the name of i think it's called playstation one which has been around for about a year actually as well so it's kind of like the big tech equivalent of keeping up with the joneses right So you've got, you know, Amazon owning Twitch. You've got everyone wants to be in the games related streaming market. And if you're not in it, you know, you're not going to be part of the gang later down the line. I think gaming is definitely another battlefield for big tech. One of my cousins works for Red Bull. He's responsible for athletes and they consider their esports guys athletes. And he says that the value of their esports athletes is significantly higher than their traditional sports athletes from a brand recall and marketing perspective, which is insane. And of course, when you entered the manifesto office today and we were looking at a video streaming of this announcement from Google, you wandered over to Eunice's desk who was watching this live and he is a gamer that plays in tournaments. And so he sort of earns money both doing his work here at manifesto and gaming like crazy. Well, there you go. Could be an esports star of tomorrow. And there's our breaking news segment. But enough about that. Let's move on from breaking news to good old-fashioned normal news. 
Planned news. Planned news. One of the stories is about the controversy surrounding Huawei. Yes, so Huawei, China's giants from the tech world. Definitely. And I think we're going to talk a lot about big tech on this episode. And it's interesting how there's a very much an East and West divide. So over in, in China, you've got the likes of Tencent and Badu and Alibaba and also you know hardware manufacturers like Huawei. And then obviously in the West, we don't really think about those guys. And we have our own versions, which we'll probably talk more about today. But we thought, why not start with a little story about Huawei, who've been in the press a lot recently, largely due to Trump's shenanigans in the US and their efforts around 5G. Yeah, and uh, the thing is really... As a country, are you going to let Huawei technology be part of your 5G networks? And at the moment, the UK hasn't banned them, but other countries have. The story is essentially that the arguably the world leader in the rollout of 5G mobile technology is a Chinese business, which some governments claim has nefarious intentions and you know, they're uncomfortable allowing them to kind of build out what is core fundamental infrastructure in those countries. Yeah, and the suggestion is that people could roll out a firmware update that could offer a backdoor to the Chinese government. And this is sort of all centred on the idea that Ren Zengfei, the founder of Huawei, was a former People's Liberation Army officer. And so that there's a suggestion that there's a tight connection between the government and the company. Yeah. And some prior history of doing exactly that with some of their previous products, which, you know. And of course, his daughter tried to be extradited to the US from Canada, which is also another aspect of this sort of controversial story. One that's probably going to run and run. Indeed. So there we go. That's Huawei. And I think, you know, really interesting to keep an eye on that and how it plays out with regard to the UK's approach to it and whether we'll allow them to be part of our infrastructure here. Now, have you managed to do a week without using Amazon? Oh, have I? I probably think I have, but the answer, unfortunately, is no. And I think that might come up again today. Going right back to the start of Alexa Stop, we talked about how exciting it was that you could Amazon Prime a block of Red Leicester in two hours to a, an office anywhere in London. That's true. We did. And we actually, for that very first episode, Amazon Prime some of the equipment, which we are still using today because we realized as we sat down to record with our first guest that we didn't have some of the cables we needed. So, you know what? It definitely has its moments, but... This is a story that really caught our eye that got covered in Gizmodo and a couple of other tech publications, which was that someone who described themselves as a masochist for trying it went on a mission to live without any of the big tech giants in their lives to see if it was even possible. And is it? Well, it doesn't seem like it is. The reality is that even if you try incredibly hard, it's almost impossible, if not you know, literally impossible to remove yourself completely from the web of data capture and insight that these guys have on you, largely because even if you choose to opt out yourself, your friends and family, for example, or colleagues will not, they can capture data on you by proxy through the information shared from those other devices. And so this person went through considerable pain and effort, and ultimately found that it was almost impossible. I've got to say, I spent the weekend in Cornwall, and I feel like it would be deeply possible where I spent the weekend <laughs> to be pretty off-grid. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But, but I suppose as soon as any friends visit, yeah. or maybe, you know, they're providing the software in the cameras in the co-op. And you, uh, Yeah, exactly. You say that. Even that's surely not true. I bet you had high-quality internet in Cornwall. There was very good internet. Yeah, and I bet you had your smartphone with you. I did. I was tracked, I was traced. You got me. <laughs> so that's our second news story for the week. A really interesting article. If you want to have a read, go on Gizmodo and, and look for I Tried to Block Amazon from My Life. Moving on to something completely different, Mr. Rankin has a new project called Selfie Harm. Yeah, this is fascinating. So Rankin is an infamous British photographer known for his incredible portrait work. If you haven't heard of him, you've almost certainly seen some of his work. He's you know, incredibly well regarded in, in this field. 
he recently produced a, a really interesting study where he photographed 15 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 and gave them the untouched portraits to edit themselves. He asked them all to retouch their face until it was social media ready and then shared the unedited, beautiful portraits that he'd taken, completely natural, alongside the edited for social media ready versions that the teenagers had done themselves and it's alarming i think to say that have least. you looked at these pictures i have please listeners go and have a look at these it's really really interesting i thought to me what stood out was that the natural images were considerably more beautiful in my opinion and also that when asked the teenagers all said they preferred the unedited images but that they felt that they were not appropriate to share on social media yeah, it's fascinating. And the images all almost have a sort of strange, non-human aspect to them where people exactly. have shrunk their, their, their face and their chin oh, and into a... Yeah, it's all the sort of, you know, big eyes and uh, I don't know. It's, it's just almost anime yeah, kind of quality Yeah, it is. It kind of it. has that slight sort of computer game type thing. And it, I don't know, It's I think it's a really intelligent articulation of some of the challenges that social media is creating and known for his social commentary and another sort of got it right again really with this an interesting piece and it's also an exhibition so there might be opportunities to see it somewhere near you and so from quite a meaningful ranking project to something a little bit silly the space rubbish harpoon well don't you know that we've been making a total mess of space for like the last 40 odd years yeah, people think, you know, you fire stuff up into space and it's all good, but there's like an increasingly large field of debris just spinning around the Earth the I whole mean, time. somewhere up there there's a, a Tesla Roadster <laughs> with yes. a guy in a, in a space suit. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is, yeah. There are people that you like to blame for some of this mess. God, all these Tesla fans and Elon lovers, uh, I suppose I'm guilty of that on occasion, littering the atmosphere. And do you know what? There's also was a packet of salt and vinegar crisps left in the glove box and now that's floating out <laughs> in space somewhere. This is a great project that's been put together, which is a titanium harpoon developed by ex-Airbus engineers in the UK. And what they've designed is this harpoon that you can fling out into space that will sort of collect up all of this floating debris and then allow for it to be reclaimed and brought back down to Earth. Did you see the video footage? I did. A little harpoon flying through the sky. I mean, it looks like you made it with your granddad <laughs> in the shed at the bottom of your garden. No no offence intended to those ex-Airbus engineers. They're certainly not the ones at Boeing that are worrying oh. <laughs> about their software. I wondered if you were going that direction. Yeah, I was going to go with, I'm glad it was Airbus, not Boeing engineers that produced it, because who knows what would have been harpooned. Well, soon the Boeing ones might be making harpoons for space <laughs> rather than aeroplanes for Earth. Yes. Apologies to Boeing shareholders. <laughs> a great project. It feels like this one, a bit of an and finally from a mainstream news programme. Like maybe it, we should say things like, some boffins have created a space <laughs> harpoon to collect rubbish. Yes. And you know what? That's it, isn't it, for the news. Let's round off there with that feel-good story about cleaning up space. I love a clean space. So uh, it's postbag time, Jim. A new segment. Wow. Who knew that we had a postbag? Well, you called for a postbag last episode, didn't you? What have we got? We've got something from Mr. Pete Trainer, friend of the show, and he feels that we missed a kind of play on words opportunity. Last episode, we had none other than Joe Loxton, who gave us a fantastic account of her startup journey for the, her business Breakfast in Bed. And so Pete thought we had this amazing opportunity to use the play on words, serial entrepreneur. I feel like that we need a groan. Oh. Oh. Thanks, Pete. Thanks yeah. for that. And, but also, Marcus was in touch to say that last month's episode combined two of his favourite things, startup stories with Alexa Stop, which is 
really a bit of a self-congratulatory postbag item. Well, let's have it. Thanks, Marcus. Marcus runs Startup Grind down in Bournemouth. So shout out to the Bournemouth fam. If you are in the startup world in the south of England, do check out the events that Marcus runs down there. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter via at Jimbo's, at Robert Belgrave, or of course, at Alexa underscore stop. So have you got a story from your CTO, a story from your CTO? I do indeed. This is kind of a part two story. So you may remember talking about Segway shoes. Do you remember that? I do. You've, have you ordered some? They've arrived. Wow. Yeah, they've arrived. So Wirehive is going through significant expansion thanks to a great year. And we've just built out a massive new office, which led to my CTO ordering some Segway shoes, which are basically electronic wheels you can stand on and move around slightly faster than a walking pace on. We have a, a normal swagway in the office, so it's good fun. I feel like it'll be hard to do I, the two-foot ones. I feel like anyone that doesn't work in technology or in the agency world is judging us a lot right now, so I'll move on. So my CTO unveiled the Segway shoes to the team with some fanfare, and the other thing that my CTO loves, which I don't think we've ever talked about and may seem a little out of character, is playing the ukulele. What? Why has this never come up? I don't know. My CTO, when he's not building weather stations for his house or... When he's cleaning <laughs> windows. Is it a bit like that? A little bit. He has a pretty extensive collection of ukuleles. This is 100% true, right? And in what he described as the most wirehive moment ever, and I take from this what you will, he did a lap of the office on Segway shoes playing the ukulele. Wow. That, I imagine, was a sight to behold. <laughs> it was definitely a sight and a sound to behold. So there, ladies and gentlemen, a story from the CTA. A story from the CTA. Um, Let's take it now to something from the hype curve. So each month we like to feature something from the world of technology and sort of say a few things about whether or not we think it's going to be a success, where it's on the hype curve at. And well, this week we've kind of got Transformers, tablets in disguise. (laughs) Yes, we do. So this is the year of the folding screen. We talked about Huawei at the top of the show. Huawei, but also Samsung, have launched folding screens. This is technology that's been in development for a long, long time and looks like it might be really quite game-changing in the years ahead. Yeah, Samsung and Huawei kind of battling against each other for the sort of size and flexibility of this foldable space. (laughs) Two very important features in all walks of life, but certainly in the area of screens. And so what is this? Well, imagine your smartphone could essentially double in size to become a tablet and then fold away back into a nice convenient form factor to slip back into your pocket. I've got to say, I'm not bothered, Rob. Are you not? I mean, do you know what? I'm not particularly bothered either, but I do think it leads to something really interesting. And what's that? Well, for example, wouldn't it be fantastic if... More sales of consumer electronics. (laughs) (laughs) Always positive. Let's imagine you could carry around a very small laptop, which you could expand into a, you know, two or three screen estate size laptop. I think that gets quite interesting. This ability to fold away screens into something small and portable and then have a much bigger screen when you need it, I think is the future. Rob, imagine a big computer that you could fold out into a house. (laughs) Would that appeal? Okay. And it would have screens on every wall. What a house. You'd never need to buy a a, a new TV because your whole house would be made out of screens. I think that's the end of that segment, isn't it? The other thing that was from the hype curve that I thought we should just throw in was the Microsoft HoloLens 2 and Connect. So this is the other version of screens, right? Maybe rather than having more flexible, portable folding screens, we'll start to put things into an AR or VR layer. And Microsoft have been the leaders in this space with the HoloLens. They just announced the HoloLens 2, which may 
see more adoption and we might start to see people in you know retail environments and things like that using them in the future so just one to keep an eye on as well i think it's all about price on that tech yeah quite possibly finally before we get into our wonderful interview it's always good to think about some tech we'd like to bring back and yes, indeed in true sort of harping back to the hype curve story actually we're just going to reference transformers as one of the best toys you ever had as a child from folding phones and tablets to good old-fashioned Transformers, Jim is doing a Transformer slash robot dance Shout out right to the now. Peter Crouch podcast, actually. Really been enjoying that, if you're talking about the robot. Yeah, we don't normally recommend other podcasts, but that Peter Crouch podcast, which is a tongue twister for uh, particularly football fans, is a favourite at the it's moment. It's been, been enjoyable. In the Electrostop studio. Okay, interview time. We'll just reset the studio, and then we'll be joined by none other than Mr. Rod Banner to talk all about what is wrong with Big Tech. Welcome back, listeners. Here we are in the Electrostop studio with our guest for this month, Mr. Rod Banner. Hi, Rod. Hello. How are you? I'm delighted to be here. It's good to have you in the studio. We first met when we sat next to each other at a Podge event, and I told you that I'd invested in a startup, and you said, oh, yeah, I know those guys. I'm not going to invest. And I immediately thought, maybe. I've made a mistake there. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but who knows? It, it could have turned out so differently. But you were right. How did it turn out? Uh, Rod was right. Terrible investment? Well, I mean, they're good friends. Total so loss? Not a total I mean, it is a total <laughs> loss. But that was the only time that we've met. How do you two know each other? I don't know how I met Rod for the first time. That's a good question. Would it have been the three beard stuff, maybe? I don't know. Rod is someone who I've just sort of bumped into over the years in the London tech agency world, and I've always found to be a charming gentleman and good conversation. And what triggered this interview was Rod wrote a really fantastic article which he shared on LinkedIn entitled The Next Chapter for Big Tech. And I thought it might be fun to just open with the uh, first paragraph from it. So here we go. An electric vehicle glides silently up the drive of an elegant suburban home. A man steps out wearing a white suit and removes three glass receptacles from a stack of cases in the back. They are each filled with a white liquid. He places them next to the front door, removes three identical empty vessels, and returns to the vehicle and slips away. He was known as the Milkman. Amazing. <laughs> um, I loved it. I mean, you know, the article goes on to talk extensively about sustainability, the kind of evolution of TV, and then moves into this problem we have with big brands and how the, the business model is broken, right? That advertising is the business model, basically, of all of these companies and that until that changes, nothing really will change. It really resonated with me and I thought, you know what? Why not get you on and talk about this problem? Because I think it's something that is very of the moment. There's all kinds of directions we could go in. Elizabeth Warren, the American senator, recently proposed that the big tech companies should be broken up and there's all kinds of stuff going on. So, Rod, why don't you tell us why this is something that is meaningful to you? What's your personal connection with this topic? I feel I've really been on a fantastically educative journey. My background, dear listeners, is that I started my career as a as an ad guy. I was in advertising. I feel almost that I should be going to Advertisers Anonymous because I feel there's a sense of guilt every time I reveal that I've worked in advertising. And I'll tell you a bit more why I feel that guilt. But my background, I launched Bailey's Irish Cream or worked on that team that did. So, you know, we worked in sort of FMCG and that kind of stuff. And then 
suddenly I struck tech. I don't know why, way before the internet was even born, because I'm quite antique myself, but I really liked technology. I worked on the launch of Casio watches. And I learned something really fundamental at that point, where an integrated circuit, as it was then known, weighed in terms of value. You could weigh integrated circuits and gold, and there was more value in an integrated circuit than there was in gold. So I thought, oh, this is my business, this is my industry. And the other thing I learned about tech then, which is still true today, by the way, is that most technology companies are started by engineers who are wonderful creatures. And I'm going to be incredibly generalizing here, but many engineers are a bit on the scale. By that, I mean... Certainly on the spectrum somewhere. We, we, make, we talk about that a lot on this podcast. Uh, yeah, well, it's true. And, and, and that doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that they need people like us to translate what they're attempting to do into things that customers would be interested in or that would actually have any benefit for those customers. So you know what it was like. Back in the day, we were sort of evolving through the, the development of tech. Do you remember ever buying a mobile phone where the handbook was bigger than the device? That's simply because it was so complicated. You needed a handbook in order to work out how to deploy it. And then sort of technology became much more consumer. Anyway, I've been on that kind of journey. So I kind of sit in the Venn diagram, somewhere between the communications sector and the tech sector. And so the internet was so exciting for me. It kind of changed so many different dynamics of human sort of existence. Changed communications, changed how we relate to each other, changed lots of stuff. And now more interesting, I suppose, behavioral science has taken what I think the technologists were striving to do and to be frank, it up. So my burning desire is to grab hold of the tech industry and change the direction that it's heading because the tech industry is where all the money is. It's where the most interesting minds are gravitating. It is the most influential force in contemporary society, but it's pursuing the wrong goals. And if you were to characterize the wrong goals that it's pursuing, what would be some, some, some examples or how would you characterize that? Well, I can expand a little on that, but you have to, f first of all, I need to establish that much as I love his enthusiasm, I'm not a Corbynite. I used to be, when I was younger, a communist, and um, I used to sell red mole at street corners. That was before I made any money and decided that actually making money wasn't a bad thing. It was really a question of what you did with it and how you made it that you should pay attention to. But I believe that fundamentally the capitalist model is run out of road, and there's many reasons why. So what's wrong with big tech and its pursuits are very much aligned with the historical capitalist model. You know, if you look at Google and why it nearly ran out of venture capital just doing search, is because even though search is incredibly useful and incredibly interesting, it wasn't commercial. And then obviously Google changed its tack and caught advertising or court marketing and figured out that search was a really good way of creating leads and 
subsequent sales and therefore being able to monetize search, which was an inspired idea. And Eric had a lot to do with that. But one that was driven by the capitalist motivation of maximizing profit. Indeed. Yeah. So there is this kind of tension always between the tech industry's desires. And anyone who's spent time in Silicon Valley kind of knows it's a sort of, it's a wonderfully liberal community of people who believe that they're doing good things for society, or at least you did. And I think that search, as defined by Larry and Sergey, was a great endeavor and making knowledge truly democratized was and still is a, a fantastic technological feat and one that really has changed all our lives so much so that it's impossible to sort of wind the clock back and do without that kind of stuff we'd be mad but on the other hand this financial driver the marketing piece has really gone completely mad completely mad and a- anybody who engages with search today doesn't really find what they're looking for. They find stuff that Google thinks they would be well compensated by sharing. So your search results are distorted by a financial imperative. Very comforting for the shareholders of Google, but not particularly comforting for those people who are recipients of the results. Obviously, when you you push the, the envelope further and you look at what Facebook does for a living, it has now stolen so much information about us. Um, many of the other social platforms have done the same. That we moved from gratefully receiving the services that these companies offered and accepted the intrusion into our privacy that they demanded to the point where the genie is impossible to squeeze back into the bottle because we can't imagine life without the services which we gleefully consume. And I suppose if you look at another tech giant like Amazon, they are both uh, the direct seller and they own a marketplace that gives them the data of any product that could become popular. So they have the ability to I suppose, undermine the business of people that are volunteering that data and that information about the products and services they sell, whether they're doing it knowingly or unknowingly. As Google do, right? Owning all the different components of the advertising stack and the marketplace and and the search engine and everything else, right? So this is the kind of other fundamental issue, I think, with a lot of these big tech businesses is they have monopolies in their fields. So actually, I agree with everything Rod's saying about the challenge, but I think then you start to look at what the alternative is and actually even if somebody wanted to come along with a slightly more i don't know let's say ethical approach to some of these services there's no way they're going to be able to break into these fields because of the monopoly powers that these businesses have so i suppose a couple of questions that fall out of this i suppose there's there's like the perhaps bigger philosophical question of is a more conscious version of capitalism necessary which is like a big question and feasible i think and feasible but you can see that in a world where fake news is overtaking real news and trust becomes more important, how something will have to change at some point. I suppose, to simplify the question, what should we do? Okay. Whilst making it a big one to answer, a nice easy one for me to say. <laughs> well, I think you can answer that question with different hats on. I suppose my 
my natural alliances, particularly having confessed my love for tech, are sort of, I, I think of myself as part American, although really I know nothing about America. I'm a bicoastal American, you know, the stuff that goes on in the middle Liberal elite. It is a complete mystery to me, with a possible exception of Austin. But that's <laughs> that, I, I think Austin belongs somewhere completely different anyway. But America, because it's bold, enthusiastic and positive about tech, has always been truly innovative. Brits are very innovative, but we've never been innovative about capital. So we only just come up with ideas and then go to America to get them funded. VCs, please note and for God's sake, just do it properly in Britain. <laughs> I mean, it's pathetic, the kind of ridiculous amounts of money we have to start businesses over here. Anyway, uh, put that one away. I think if you're going to sort of change things, there's the tech industry and the leadership of the tech industry. And f for heaven's sake, what more do you need? You know, if you've got as many users as Google and Facebook and Amazon have, isn't it about time to think of how you could actually improve the human experience and improve human life rather than continuously try to crush small startups and, and competitors? I see no purpose in that. And it's not like you need to be any bigger, but what you do need to be is slightly magnanimous and believe in an ethical framework that allows growth and your competitors or at least your uh, inspirational upstarts that could only dream of being a tiny fragment of the, your size, but who may have inspirational ideas that could impact your business for the good let them grow and survive and i'm a real fervent believer that um hot housing startups under the umbrella of an apple or an amazon would be a great and useful thing to do if you're that big but more importantly what is your purpose is it simply to make money for shareholders one argues that it's about customer satisfaction but that customer satisfaction always seems to come with price reduction and speed of action. Let's talk about Apple for a moment. Sure. Because I grew up as a fanboy of Apple, you know, way back in the day that they launched a very deficient product in the Macintosh. The Think Different era. Yeah. There OG were, Apple. There, there was obvious realization that technology could change the world it just had to get better it was rebellious almost wasn't it it had a real spirit to it that i don't think we see so often these days in tech companies and much more importantly jobs and his madmen of the time had a very clear idea that technology needs to work for people rather than people needing to get to grips with complex pieces of kit so the Mac came out and i had been using code-based languages, ridiculously complex pieces of kit to do very simple things. And suddenly it, it felt like you could do useful stuff with this product. And, you know, 25 years later, it actually delivered what it set out to do. Nevertheless, Apple have always been 
very user experience centric and they've really simplified many of the tasks that ordinary people have tried to get done. So much so that I wasn't the only fanboy. Do you remember when people used to queue in the street outside Apple stores <laughs> because the products that they were about to launch were there ready to change people's lives? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you know, Tim Cook's a great guy. He's a great product guy. We see the same products as we're either already born or on the stocks when Steve was alive, just getting a bit sharper, but not really revolutionizing those tasks that we're all struggling with. In fact, Apple, I would say, is going backwards in many respects. It's becoming more complex. I mean, I don't wish to be truly disparaging of them, but they've grown into a kind of Microsoftian company of a prior era i feel somehow bereft that in big tech they were the last bastion of the people on my side i don't know anybody who is on my side anymore unless i look at me being a shareholder of a big tech company but it's interesting isn't it that that said and i totally relate to everything you've said there about apple they are arguably the only big tech company that is not selling your data to other people. Yes, it, it's sort of true. Yeah. But actually, it's not true. Because I saw those posters too, you know. I'm afraid it's not fair. Because what goes on my iPhone stays on my iPhone, I think, was what they yeah. stuck it, on a unless wall. Unless you use the Google Maps app. Or yeah. Facebook, true, or Twitter, true. or pretty much anything that engages with the social platforms that are designed to run on the on iOS. So... I, I don't we buy don't, that. We don't make the alcohol, we just sell it, I guess, is sort of the... I just think, you know... And we make adver- substandard versions of some of the apps that you can <laughs> yeah. choose to use. I think if I was running in an ad agency, which I do remember running, that that claim would fall foul of the Advertising Standards Authority. And somebody out there in listener land can probably check it out. And it would be fun to do. We've got the right people to uh, to... to, to Take a call on that one. I think so. We should report it. Why not? Yeah, see how far it goes. And so, look, I think maybe this brings us to to joy for a moment, because I think that... It's funny, Rob, I was going to carry on with the not joy. (laughs) Well, take us to joy. Come on. We can always come back to that. Yeah, I, 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 I think that the... I think your comments about the capitalist model is really interesting, and I think sometimes the easiest solution... Oh, can we talk about that for a bit? Because yeah, yeah. the capitalist mo- why the capitalist model is broken? Well, I'll say my piece and then I'd love to hear you know what, what your thoughts are. My view on this is that actually the most likely way this changes is if what consumers want changes and actually the model doesn't have to change at all because capitalism obviously maximizes profit. So if, for example, the behavior of consumers changes such that the way to maximize profit is actually to be a bit more considerate of some of these things, well, then these companies are inevitably going to change. Now, that is perhaps a little bit ambitious, (laughs) far-fetched, some would say, to believe that that might change. But I do think in the last 12 to 18 months, we are starting to see consumers understand a bit more about privacy the reason apple were putting those posters on buildings is because it starts to matter to people these facebook scandals that have overturned elections you know we've just come back from south by southwest which we're going to cover on next month's podcast but the theme throughout was this kind of uprising of awareness and you know to use a sort of americanism everyone's a bit more woke suddenly to the whole concept and so i wonder if or maybe maybe i hope that rather that consumers might drive this change 
and allow these businesses not to have to evolve at all and actually just to keep being horrible or whatever you consider strongly motivated capitalist companies to be businesses and that the consumer demand will shift their strategy now that's my slightly holistic version of what i think might happen what do you think I've always found that prognosticating is something that's really hard to do. In many cases, I think you're talking with a lot of optimism about a chicken and egg situation. In many cases, the consumer's reaction to Cambridge Analytica, so-called scandal, shocked me because as a marketer, most of the things that Cambridge Analytica were doing was what we were doing anyway. I mean, that's what marketing is these days. It's just that suddenly the Daily Mail woke up to it and thought it stunk. Well, it does, actually, which is one of the reasons why I still go to Advertisers Anonymous. And I'll talk to you about that anytime you want. But, you know, marketing is an irritating thing. We try to understand behaviors of people so that we can sell them things that they really do not need often. And... We also encourage them to think in a disparaging way about the things which they bought when we were last trying to tell them to buy stuff. So we are creating this unnecessary need. We're driving the world into a much less sustainable economic and, 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 and environmental situation for no real purpose whatsoever except to keep people in jobs. And I would argue that that's just ridiculous. I don't really see the point of it anymore. And I just flew back from South Africa yesterday, and you could buy Evian in the store, in a plastic bottle, which I wanted to jump up and down and hit people. About the fact, why on earth am I drinking water that comes so far, in a plastic bottle, by the way, which Africa really doesn't need? And there's just no purpose to it. But somehow there's a brand that we all can associate with a particular type of water and we're encouraged to buy it. This is just one instance, but there are many others where I believe advertising is not serving the use and the needs of humanity at all well. I suppose did it ever serve those needs it's just that it's worked really well and helped over time build a sort of consumer driven society so there was a time you in your the start of your article you refer to the milkman which is you know relatively sustainable you leave the milk bottles back outside again but actually there was plenty of fairly straightforward advertising at the time uh, going way back certainly through the 50s and things like that that were trying to pretty much sell those products to people but actually it took hold and everyone bit and actually got really into just buying stuff all the time and so I suppose we've got a compounded behavioral change over decades does that mean it will take decades to undo well I think I went off on a bit of a tangent as is my way realistically this whole idea of behavioral change coming from sort of mavens who established the point Rob made earlier about privacy is now something that we're getting a little bit more precious about. I think that that trade-off that we make has been certainly obfuscated by the big tech vendors. Nobody reads the terms and conditions that we all sign up no, to. Of course and not. if they did, they would be horrified by precisely what they have signed away. And they'd be even more horrified if anybody who's a digital marketer just dug 
a little bit into the profile information that one can pull together from anybody who engages with digital marketing. And so do you think governments have a role to play here? So if you look last year about, you know, things like GDPR coming in, you know, but that starts to create a mismatch between regulation in different countries. And and does that, you know, change the competitive nature of a certain country against another country? Or is there something else that governments should do collectively? Or is regulation always just going to lag so much? You ask so many difficult questions, which I can only have a pop at. But I mean, GDPR, as a marketer, obviously, I was really irritated by it because it creates lots of work and it's, and, it, and it's very detailed. As a human being, I think it's actually great. And it, what was so great about it, and unbelievably, coming from a governmental organisation, it was pretty useful in that it set an agenda for the world that I really respect. And I think that even the American companies that through gritted teeth had to comply with it have thought, actually, it's not too bad. Maybe we should do something similar. And I think actually there will be a cascade effect from GDPR that does legislate against the abduction of our personal data and personal behavior information. And so, you know, regulation might help. But I think another thing from your fantastic LinkedIn article was this idea that actually tech needs to dream a new dream and and it has to change from within itself or or we're never going to see it Mm. really move forward maybe you could talk a bit about that like what what's your and maybe this brings us back to joy again if you like i don't know but what do you think that dream could be what's your perspective on the direction tech could take that move the needle on this a little bit well If you take the thinking that I was sharing around my disparagement of the marketing sector, what is wrong with marketing, and you highlight the fact that people are less satisfied with the things that they bought when you try and sell them something that's brand new, you can also look at the way people have created social profiles of themselves that are massively enhancing the truth the selfie pictures that people post on social platforms that are massively retouched and distorted images of themselves because they want to look better than they believe they already look. That kind of world of enhanced reality, I believe, is making many of us really quite depressed. We look around and we see other images of people and they look so good and they seem to live such a great life these influences are contributors towards the rise of mental illness and depression and suicide and many of the grim realities of our contemporary society now the tech industry's got to take responsibility for this social media is not truly social I'm not the only person to say this, but it is emblematic of social. It's it's ersatz social. It's fake social. It's lies and distortion. There's no warts and spots on people on social. And without that, this is twisting society. There's no one really putting their hands up for help unless they're on a a site where they are about to commit suicide or self-harming, of which there are many. So why, therefore, 
doesn't the tech industry take more responsibility for the joy factor of humanity? Instead of making people rich, shareholders or vendors or whoever, when the tech industry start looking in, into another metric? And I talk about joy. I probably choose the word because it fits rather than its technical dictionary definition. But allow me to just expand on what I mean by Please. joy. Yeah, yeah. I think we, you know, are happy and we're sad in our lives regularly. We have happy days and sad days. Sad things happen to us, happy things happen. It's like a sine wave and it goes up and down in perpetuity. But where the x-axis meets the y-axis is what I would define as joy. So you go up and down, but you sit on a on a sort of standard continuous. And some people who are depressed are lower down that scale. And some people are naturally joyful are higher up that scale. And you know exactly what these people are like. These are the optimists, the people who walk into the room and light things up and make you feel buoyant. And the depressed people walk into the room and gloom everything down. And these are the people who have more mental illness and they're more you know, challenged to cope with the everyday life. Now, if you imagine the tech industry metricating this stuff in the same way that they would behavior that defines likelihood to purchase all the other millions of metrics they obsess about correct yeah but if you imagine all the power and ingenuity of the tech industry trying to figure out where joy can be measured and joy comes from and joy could be created my view is a tech industry could change humanity in a different way. Now, one, as a venture capitalist, argue, well, what's the point in that? You know, I'm not going to make any money. There's no return on that. So what if you blew up the capitalist system or at least challenged it with a new type of currency? Instead of making money, you could make a currency that was around joy. How... I could imagine one measured it might be a bit like the net promoter score, something really simple and almost laughable, but actually something that could be acceptable. So that if you had an engagement with a product or a service that made you feel a little bit more joyful, then you would say that and you could indicate that it was a more joyful experience than before. Imagine that tech industry was then measuring this on a global scale and imagine even more that those neoliberal Californian leaders of those tech industry were suddenly looking at the possibility that actually Apple was uh, creating more joy in the world than Google or Facebook or whoever. It didn't really matter who's doing it, but whoever it was, a competitive race to create joy to me, seems much more agreeable than a competitive race to make more money. And I believe there is a correlation between the creators of joy and wealth. If you go back to the original industrial revolution, the first one, 
the people who started big businesses recognized then that their employees were really vital to their success. They hired people and they looked after them. They built homes for them. They, do you know that they built parks? And that the original parks in Bourneville, where the chocolate company was, were a model for London's park system, or if it, if it is indeed a system, which was then copied by many other countries. So, you know, th- these were m- far more thoughtful entrepreneurs. And I think they recognized they sat in society rather than they sat in Menlo Park or uh, the, the Google campus. I'm sorry to keep picking on Google, but what the hell? You can afford it. I think tech has lost its relationship with society at large. It serves its shareholders. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's because many of those businesses have never really taken that responsibility, whereas in that sort of first wave of industrial revolution, there were almost the sort of construction element of making the environment, perhaps because that environment didn't already exist. I grew up in an area where the bowls club, the tennis courts, everything was built by um, Foden, who are a truck manufacturer. Um, and so, and actually through the sort of 80s, you gradually saw the land get sold off and that well, that sort of social infrastructure that had been provided by that earlier sort of industrial re- revolution sort of being dissipated and and the sort of information age sort of going actually we run things completely differently and the life goes from the high streets and the small villages and the towns and and everything becomes about l- much larger urban dwellings and then technology where i don't think that was ever sort of seen as a responsibility by the people that started those businesses I wonder if this is also part of the increasing divide between the rich and the poor. You know, I wonder if in that era, because the gap was much smaller, I've never really thought about this, I'm sort of, it's come to me as we're talking, you know, perhaps people felt more connected to their society and the community. So they felt more obliged or frankly, just more responsible for contributing, right, in a meaningful way. Whereas now it's like there's this huge divide you know the uh, let's pick on cupertino to move it on right so the, the folks that work at apple versus the homeless of san francisco and you know there's this huge topic at the moment in america and this can be seen in cities all over the world you know as that divide gets bigger it's like there's almost no connection anymore between the poles of it and i wonder if maybe that contributes what do you think there's sort of huge complex societal changes that have happened in that period like the the role of of family and 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 how education works and so it's it's a period of enormous change that's occurred and i suppose you could be very difficult to pinpoint it to any single reason it's like the world has changed and maybe it's gone a bit too far in a certain direction and how can we bring it back or or rather than back to a new place that's further beyond you hit on a really good point if you look at tech and you have the good fortune as i do to remember how tech has changed the world that we live in there was a time let's say when you used to make long distance phone calls and they were very expensive now they're not not only phone calls have been changed but the way we communicate with e-traffic of one sort or another has been massively useful but the tech industry has created so much communication and so many different platforms to deliver it that the whole nature of communication has become incredibly difficult if i want to reach you i 
I might Telegram message you or WhatsApp you or send you a LinkedIn message or email you or ring you or Skype you or whatever it may be. But I cannot find a piece of technology that weaves all this stuff together. So I can't remember where I last sent a message to you, perhaps. Or the overall experience is now much more complex than it was and therefore no longer serving me well. And not least of all, I now have to have pieces of technology helping to weed out the messages from people I want to speak to and don't want to speak to because so many people are trying to contact me, many of whom are not even real humans, many of whom are just automated bots repeatedly sending me emails pretending to be a person that I've now got AI running on my inbox to sort of separate out the the, the good from the not good. So I'm actually harder to get hold of than I was because I'm so scared of who's trying to get hold of me and what they want from me. So you see how the tech industry has sort of grown in power, status, authority, but actually no longer serving the individual quite as well as it did. The other thing that I find truly amazing because I see it every day in many, many places, I'm sure everyone will be able to relate to this. I see people in restaurants sitting opposite each other, but communicating through their digital device. You see families very often, mother, father, little kids, all of them clutching a digital device, no one speaking for an entire lunchtime, and wondering... How is this truly serving society? It's a massive challenge and one that isn't going to be corrected, I believe, by behavioral modification. All those attention activists that I know love and support and contribute towards are not going to change the habits of many families around our nation and others unless something horrible forces people to. So I believe the tech industry has to embrace their massive role. They're more influential than governments. They've got more money than governments. They've got to recognize that the people who are their customers, with whom they contact, communicate, serve, however they engage with them, Those people are their responsibility and their mental and physical welfare should be at the top of their boardroom agenda. And you've got a project called Joytech. So just summarise that for us. It started as a direct result of the tragic demise of my niece, who at the age of 21 took her own life. And I speak about her not because I'm looking for sympathy, but she is emblematic of a whole collection of young people who are taking their own lives. And I would argue for not very good reason. I don't think that she should have taken her own life. She thought she was somehow um, inferior. And I would put that down to a lot of social media images and experiences that she had in the virtual world. It just struck me that she was persecuted by a world 
driven by tech. And I felt I needed to try and do something about it. So Joytech, joytech.org, Joytech was a passion project. And I shared a piece that I wrote with a few folk who all agreed with me that tech industry needed to take more responsibility. And we started to think about how. We started to look at tech in education, um, tech in actually in mental health. We thought maybe we should try and use tech to fix mental health. For those of you who have mental health challenges, you recognize that many of the treatments are about finding counselors. So one-to-one counseling is the is one of the favored routes forward, but there are never enough counselors and no money to sort of fund them. So we thought, well, obviously with uh, machine learning and AI, we could create counselor bots and made a few calls, recognized that some people were doing that, experienced a few bots and realized that they weren't going to be the answer. They were an answer, but they weren't going to be the answer. Then we started looking at pharmaceuticals and you know, farmers huge. In America, 25% of Americans are on some kind of psychiatric medication, you know, happy pills. And whether that's a good idea or not is open to debate. But there are ways that the tech industry is attempting, one could see, to help with mental illness. I think mental illness is always depicted as rather gloomy and and I'm talking about it from the perspective of the ultimate gloom of suicide. But everyone has mental health in the same way that we have physical health and we need to do more to understand how we can live a more joyful life. So the Joytech idea was to say to tech industry, this is joy, we want more of it, help us deliver pretty much. And it strayed into so many different things. I mean, I've been at this for about two years now, and it strayed into politics. Um, (laughs) So much has kind of popped up in the two years since we started this idea that way before privacy popped up, way before Brexit and Trump popped up, that made me think, we're onto something here. Unfortunately, I'd like to throw myself into it full time, and I'm, I'm still doing a few brand consulting gigs but hopefully we'll get some sponsorship and we've been talking to a few companies to do this full time we know a few people with enough money right yeah exactly yeah and i'm sure i'm sure some people listening to this right now could if they wanted to offer significant support so it's it's joytech.org and i think it's a really meaningful idea that could actually do something good in the world well to finish up I, i think i'd like to ask a simple question what brings you joy Well, we've actually done a study. On the site, there is a study that you can complete and you can also see the results so far. Bizarrely, one always thinks that it's going to be about buying that new thing, that brand shiny new thing. It's never the case. And the thing that comes up time after time is spending time with friends. Actually, friends above family. And I'll leave everyone to ponder that thought marginally but nevertheless definitively friends probably come with less baggage than family i suppose but we just like spending time with human beings and we don't do enough of it and therefore i would encourage everyone the techies the you know the marketers the the passionate people who i hope are listening to put your tech down and give someone a hug and live a simpler life 
because it actually will make you more joyful. What a beautiful note to end on. Rod, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. My pleasure.